argument this morning in case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. Mississippi's ban on abortion two months before viability is flatly unconstitutional under decades of precedent. Welcome to The Term, a podcast by the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Jimmy, it's been a big day today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Natalie. Um, we're obviously gathered here for this emergency Wednesday podcast as opposed to our usual Thursday podcast because the Supreme Court reconsidered a very important precedent this week at oral arguments. Chevron deference, right? No, no. Okay, fine. Well, I, that was yesterday, right? That was yesterday. <laughs> Today, we heard oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which involved the very important issue of whether the Supreme Court should overturn 50 years of its abortion jurisprudence in Roe versus Wade. There were two hours of oral arguments. Natalie, how are you feeling? I know you listened to the case as well. And uh, yeah, what'd you think? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I'm still digesting it, right? Uh, it, we're recording here at the end of the day. Um, and this, you know, the arguments were early in the morning. Um, but for two hours, they were jam-packed, which I think, you know, we all expected, right? Um, this is obviously the blockbuster case of this term in a term filled with blockbusters. Um, it's being heavily watched by the legal community, but also outside the legal community, um, just because of the potential impact from what the court decides. Um, Jimmy, I know you were actually over at the courthouse steps uh, before the arguments. Can you kind of paint the scene of, of what you saw there? I mean, you're exactly right. It's an issue that matters to millions of Americans. It's the kind of, in, in some cases, the central motivating issue for a lot of voters and presidential elections. And that was pretty apparent when I drove over to the courthouse this morning to just get a sense of the environment outside the court. And as expected, there were, you know, throngs of protesters, both from the pro-life and pro-choice contingents, you know, um, basically with dueling chants and bullhorns and lots of posters and just a lot of animation and excitement outside the court. There was some civil disobedience after um, the oral arguments that resulted in um, arrests, I think, of pro-choice protesters. So I mean, it's not lost on anyone who was out there that this is a very important issue to a lot of people. But of course, the most important thing that happened today was actually inside the courtroom, and that was what the justices were talking about as they heard Mississippi's appeal to effectively uphold um, its 15-week abortion ban and strike down the 50-year-old Supreme Court precedent in Roe versus Wade. So before we get into, you know, just what happened at oral arguments, Jimmy, can you kind of unpack the case a little bit? Right. So we talk a lot about very complicated cases on this podcast involving all sorts of doctrines and, you know, complicated questions of civil procedure. This is not one of those cases. This is a very straightforward case. Mississippi enacted a law in 2018 that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, under the Supreme Court's current uh, abortion jurisprudence dating back to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, women have a constitutional right to obtain an abortion before a fetus is viable. That's a, that's a period that's considered about 24 weeks. So this ban, under Supreme Court's current precedent, 
is plainly unconstitutional. And that's exactly what the, the kind of conservative Fifth Circuit held, and it affirmed the, the invalidation of this law. Now, this was not you know, an accident. This was intentionally designed by the Mississippi legislature to, to present a vehicle in which, a test case, if you will, to get up to the Supreme Court to get the justices to reconsider its abortion jurisprudence, and in fact, overturn Roe versus Wade that has stood since 1973. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court agreed to do by taking up this case. So that's what got us into the courthouse, into the courtroom on Wednesday morning when they, or on this morning when the, the justices heard uh, oral arguments here in the case. So before we get into kind of the more nitty gritty of the arguments, what is your overall impression of the hearing? Uh, you know, the big takeaway. So I, I tweeted through this hearing just to, to get a sense from what some of the key justices kind of were leaning, which way they were leaning on the ultimate question of Roe, and in particular about this Mississippi 15-week abortion ban. And, you know, over the course of the hearing, it became like steadily more apparent to me that there was a clear majority to uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortions. The question at the end of the hearing that I'm left with is whether the Supreme Court will take the further step of getting rid of Roe versus Wade entirely. So when I say that, in order to uphold um, Mississippi's 15-week ban, the Supreme Court has to make some kind of change to its current way of approaching abortion cases because of this viability rule that I mentioned that was later clarified in the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That's another one we're going to hear a lot about today. So the argument goes um, that the Supreme Court can uphold this Mississippi law without doing some damage to Roe. Now, there are a number of ways in which it can uphold the law, though, right? So the Supreme Court could effectively get rid of this viability line that it established in Roe and reaffirmed in Casey and say that earlier bans on abortion can stand. Now, that is not the same exact thing as saying there is no constitutional right to abortion whatsoever. So for me, at the end of the hearing, it's really going to be a matter of, does the Supreme Court simply move up the line and start to tolerate earlier bans on abortion, like the 15-week ban at issue in this case? Or does it go uh, take that huge step that the conservative legal movement has sought to take for the last 50 years? And that is to say that the Constitution does not protect a woman's right to obtain a, an abortion at any phase of gestation. And that states, like Mississippi, and like other Republican states around the country that feel so inclined, can enact total and outright bans on abortions at all stages of gestation. This, to me, seems like the single biggest question after the hearing today. You're right. And that would be, you know, a major step by the court. Both of them would be major steps. But that last scenario would be, you know, a pretty big one. What did you hear at oral arguments that kind of convinced you that Roe was in that kind of trouble? Well, I, I got to be honest, Natalie. I went into this hearing thinking that we were going to hear a lot more of the middle ground approach, mm -hmm. 
that is the that is I thought we were going to hear from some key justices, some waffling, a certain extent of waffling, like you hear in a lot of kind of close cases where the justices are, you know, the key votes that we're paying attention to are kind of really examining this issue from both sides and that, you know, maybe they're leaning one way or the other, but there is kind of a degree of, you know, closeness there to the to the questions. I didn't really hear that at all from the key votes that we're talking about. Now, the key votes that I'm talking about are these new median justices on the court that have that now sit at the ideological center of the bench because of the way that the court has been reshaped. Now, you got to remember when Donald Trump took office in 2017, right? This was a court that had a clear 5 to 4 majority in favor of abortion rights. You had Justice Anthony Kennedy, and you had the four liberal justices that included the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, what happened? Justice Anthony Kennedy retired to be replaced by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in late 2020 to be replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So these were the votes. These are the justices that if anything has changed, they're going to be the ones to change it, right? So those are the people that I was really paying attention to at oral arguments today, and I got to be honest, after listening to two hours of questioning, I did not get the sense from either Kavanaugh or Barrett and to a, to, a, to a lesser extent, Chief Justice Roberts, that they were interested in simply reaffirming Roe versus Wade. I mean, you have to ask yourself, why did the Supreme Court take this case anyway? This is an appeal from Mississippi. This is not an appeal from the abortion clinics like we've seen in past cases. So even by taking the case, they're signaling that they're more inclined than not to tweaking the way that it that its abortion jurisprudence is currently written. And I, I just felt that um, there's a clear majority to uphold um, Mississippi's 15-week ban and at the very least get rid of this viability line. I definitely want to dig in more to what you know, the justices said at oral arguments, but maybe let's start at the beginning. Do, do you want to kind of break down the arguments from the advocates? Yeah, we heard a little bit from um, Mississippi Solicitor General uh, Scott Stewart at the beginning of this show before, before the intro up top. That was his opening statement, but that was essentially his argument in a nutshell, and that is that Roe versus Wade is bad law. It has, in his words, it haunts the country, it poisons the law, it chokes off compromise, and it should, in no uncertain terms, be completely relegated to the dustbin of the Supreme Court's dead jurisprudence. I mean, that was the argument that he was making. There was no, there was no nuance about it, really. I mean, it was a clear clarion call to the Supreme Court to turn its back and close the book once and for all on Roe versus Wade and the constitutional right to abortion. That's pretty charged rhetoric. It is charged rhetoric. And it, it, there's a reason for that. And that is gone are the days where um, pro-life advocates have to appeal to a moderate Supreme Court justice like Justice Anthony Kennedy. Mississippi's Solicitor General has made the decision that it's not in his best interest or the, in the best interest of the pro-life community to take any kind of half-measured approach here. They're going for gold. And the fact that they've gotten the Supreme Court to come this far and agree to reconsider its abortion precedents in the first place suggests that he's not turning back now and he's no longer appealing to a Justice Kennedy. He needs five votes and no more than five votes. So really... If we consider Chief Justice Roberts to be 
the more moderate justice on the Supreme Court right now, he really doesn't even have to appeal that much to Chief Justice Roberts. He just needs five votes to go along with the proposition that Roe versus Wade be overturned. And that's why you see him so aggressively calling for its reconsideration, because he knows that there are a, there's a strong critical mass of originalist and textualist judges on the court that that at the at in their heart of hearts probably disagree with Roe versus Wade and the question is whether they have the stomach to effectively you know put the considerations around precedent to the side and simply overrule it and he's made the the judgment call that he probably thinks there are and and precedent or or stare decisis was was basically the core of the argument from the respondents in the case Jackson Women's Health which is the lone abortion clinic in the entire state right Jimmy yeah, starry decisis, starry decisis, starry decisis. That's what we heard from Julie Rickleman of the Center for Reproductive Rights. She's the attorney for Jackson Women's Health. And so she's not going to win this case by con- trying to convince the conservative justices on the Supreme Court that Roe versus Wade was rightly decided in the first instance. She knows that they probably disagree with it. And so her argument, virtually her entire argument, is that stare decisis factors, this is the Latin phrase for adherence to precedent, cuts in favor of upholding Casey. She says that um, none of the factors that are necessary for the court to overrule precedent are present here. Women have relied on the constitutional right to abortion for 50 years. They've made tremendous economic strides in the workplace and elsewhere. And that the court, for the court to turn back now would essentially be to turn its back on stare decisis entirely. And she says the court considered all these same arguments that Mississippi has made in the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the the last true direct challenge to Roe versus Wade in 1992. And there, a plurality of the Supreme Court rejected all of them and upheld Roe versus Wade. So she says to do so now would effectively be to undermine the rule of law in this country. I think in the early part of the arguments, you know, Justice Sotomayor, for one, really dominated a lot of that conversation. And, and she really seemed to to nab hold of this argument that that the abortion provider was putting forward about stare decisis. And, and, and she really she came out with some strong words just about, you know, her concern of like whether the Supreme Court as an institution would would take a hit. If, if they were to overturn... Would survive, Roe. right. Yeah. Here's a clip, actually, from, from Justice Sotomayor. Fifteen justices over um, 50 years have, or I should say 30 since Casey, have reaffirmed that basic viability line. Four have said no, two of them members of this court, But 15 justices have said yes, of varying political backgrounds. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution 
and its reading are just political acts. So I think that was like, you know, a really key moment in the arguments. Um, but Jimmy, as, as you said, I think it just it just comes down to the votes, right? <laughs> it just comes down to the votes, Natalie. I mean, that that when I heard Justice Sotomayor say that, my ears really perked up because, you know, I listen to a lot of Supreme Court arguments, so do you, and we hear justices often, you know, really attack the arguments um, of a counsel that they disagree with. Um, perhaps even they suggest that, you know, there's good policy reasons, even if not legal reasons to do a certain thing. It's it's pretty rare, I would say, for the for a Supreme Court justice in an oral argument to say that, you know, our institution might not survive the political hit that it's going to get from a certain ruling. And that just goes to show the stakes of this case. I mean, we, we can't look at this case in a vacuum, right? Because the Supreme Court is currently, there's a reform commission studying this whole issue, and it's basically at its lowest point of public confidence, maybe in history. Well, I took that moment, honestly, for to, to be as like a point where Justice Sotomayor, I think, was like making her argument to her fellow justices in sure. a lot of ways, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, it, it was an impassioned argument. Um, but as you said, you know, it's going to come down to Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett. Maybe let's chat a little bit further about just what they were saying in these arguments. Yeah, the first one we really started to hear from was Chief Justice Roberts. And his questions all focused on and really zeroed in on this issue of the viability line. He originally points out that when the Roe versus Wade was originally being litigated, the whole issue surrounding where to draw a line around viability was not actually briefed or discussed at length by the Supreme Court. And in fact, he refers to one of the justices who participated in that case, Justice Blackmun, who in his papers revealed that the line about viability, the viability line, was actually dicta in that case. And Chief Justice Roberts brings this up and he says, yeah, maybe it's not the greatest source, but this just kind of was invented out of thin air. And he doesn't say those exact words, but this is something that he comes back to over and over again during the oral arguments. And I want to play one um, clip here from him in which he is questioning um, uh, Rickleman and suggesting that maybe viability isn't really a great place to draw the line here in terms of you know when abortion restrictions can take place because it's at 24 weeks. If you think that the issue is one of choice, uh, uh, that women should have a choice to terminate their pregnancy, um, that supposes that there is a point at which they've had the fair choice, uh, opportunity to choice. And why would 15 weeks be an inappropriate line? So a viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. Um, uh, but if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? So Rickleman responds that without this viability line, states like Mississippi will just simply try to ban abortion earlier and earlier towards gestation, towards conception, rather. And so viability, she suggests, is basically the best place to place the line. But what this whole exchange shows us is that Chief Justice Roberts wants to do away with the viability line. Now, what does that mean? 
That means that he would uphold the Mississippi law at 15 weeks here. But importantly, what Chief Justice Roberts was not really focusing on or really even entertaining at all is this whole idea of scrapping Roe versus Wade entirely. So this is almost like his version of a compromise ruling. I mean, I know just a few years ago, no one would have thought, you know, essentially getting rid of Roe and Casey's basically whole framework and its viability line. It was not a compromise at all. That was like a worst case scenario. But in this case, the worst case scenario is the complete abolition of the constitutional right to abortion. So here's the math here, Natalie, is that Chief Justice Roberts plus the liberal justices on the court make up four votes. So if he wants to actually have a compromise ruling here, he's going to need at least one other conservative on board, right? And I didn't really hear another conservative that was willing to take that deal. So normally, in a lot of these compromise situations, we see Kavanaugh kind of step up into that role. And I know you actually had a a great story yesterday kind of talking about how this case essentially might come down to Kavanaugh in a lot of ways. What did you see from his, you know, questioning? Let's just back up for a second, because obviously Kavanaugh's been on the court for just a little over three years now. Um, And before his whole confirmation proceeding was derailed by, you know, allegations of sexual misconduct, abortion was the central issue that was being discussed by the Senate Judiciary Committee. And during his testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee, over and over again he was asked about abortion, and he declared it to be an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It's precedent on precedent, Casey is. That's what Kavanaugh said. I don't know if you remember um, Senator Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine, a, a pro-choice um, Republican senator from Maine, said that Kavanaugh had assured her in a private conversation that he viewed Roe as settled law. And so going into this case, I I was thinking that Kavanaugh's vote was definitely in play here. But then I heard oral arguments, and he left pretty much no doubt that he was leaning toward overturning Roe in its entirety. Now, he didn't put it in his own words, right? So what you often hear Kavanaugh say is something to the effect that, you know, your friends on the other side will make this argument. Now, he did that over and over and over again, and he had no real tough questions for the actual Solicitor General from Mississippi here. He seemed incredibly sympathetic to his argument that the Constitution is silent on abortion. There's no abortion clause of the Constitution that provides a right to abortion. It's neutral, he says. And so what the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey is essentially put its thumbs on the scales of this hugely divisive social question around abortion and declaring that there's a constitutional protection for it. And so I want to play a clip where he's asking Rickleman, the attorney from the Center for Reproductive Rights, why the Supreme Court shouldn't get rid of Roe versus Wade when a number of other landmark, widely revered holdings, past holdings of the of the Supreme Court, for instance, Brown versus Board, overturned past precedent. In each of those cases, and that's Uh, a list, and I could go on, and those are some of the most consequential and important in the court's history. The court overruled uh, precedent, and um, it turns out uh, if the court in those cases had 
had listened and they were presented in our, with arguments in those cases adhere to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhere to Plessy on uh, West Coast Hotel, adhere to Atkins and adhere to Lochner. And if the court had done that in those cases, uh, you know, this, the country would be a much different place. So I assume you agree with most, if not all, the cases I listed there where the court overruled precedent. So the question uh, on stare decisis is why if, and I know you disagree with what I'm about to say in the if, if we think that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality and, uh, and um, not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't? Yeah, Jimmy, I think, as you said, you know, Kavanaugh did seem to be kind of playing his hand, right, a little bit there with, with those kind of comments. Um, you know, I think someone we really haven't talked about too much here is is kind of the, the X factor, right, the, the new factor, <laughs> which is Justice Barrett. The wild card, as she's yeah. often called. Um, <laughs> Justice Barrett is the big question mark in this case. Um, now, I don't want to say that she was completely silent at arguments. She, in fact, had a lot to say. But she, and I will give her credit for being very good at keeping her cards close to the vest. Um, now, I don't, for the record, think that she is a vote to with the liberals to just reaffirm Roe versus Wade and say that the current abortion jurisprudence of the Supreme Court is gravy and Mississippi's law should be struck down. But when it comes to this particular question about should the Supreme Court simply get rid of the viability line and allow earlier bans on abortion like Mississippi's, or should it overturn the abortion right entirely, it wasn't entirely clear to me where she's coming at this question from. Um, but I do want to focus on on a couple moments here where I'll just mention one where she's, you know, she's asking questions of the advocates and she's really interested in the how to weigh the factors of stare decisis. So it seems like that's at least a, a central, you know, motivating concern for her and how to balance this. And she doesn't really say she's leaning one way or the other. But there's one kind of big hint, I would say, into which she may have revealed her hand slightly, and that was in the issue of um, something called safe haven laws. Um, I don't know if you've heard of these, Natalie. Safe haven laws are a relatively new phenomenon in American, in American history. Um, I think the first one was in Texas in the late 90s. But basically, they allow um, a safe harbor for um, parents of unwanted babies, unwanted infants, newborns, to essentially turn in their, their, their infant into a specifically designated place where those infants will be kept in the charge of the state until they can be adopted. I think they're also called Moses Laws. Now, these, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, that was maybe maybe they weren't on the books in the early 90s when um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey reaffirmed Roe. And in Casey, the Supreme Court um, made a lot of the fact that forcing women to carry you know unwanted pregnancies 
was extremely and incredibly hard on on the mothers. Now, Justice Barrett makes this really interesting point that does the advent of these safe harbor laws change the calculus here when it comes to the burden on expectant mothers when now there's a situation where they essentially have amnesty in turning over children that they do not want. And this is the, this is the clip where she makes this point. Seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities. It's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, you know, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. Um, however, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why, why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter? So I talked to an attorney today and I asked her about this question from Justice Barrett. And her response was that it, it was, it sh- to her, she, she interpreted and read this question as Justice Barrett kind of looking for a way under the traditional factors of stare decisis to establish that circumstances have changed since the early 90s when Casey was reaffirmed Roe, such that the court can now be at liberty to overturn both decisions. Now, this is all very speculative. It's reading in between the tea leaves. But if you're wondering, you know, where she's like, why this question? This could be a reason. And, and there was, in fact, another moment during oral arguments because this was also another one in which she kind of came to the aid of the Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was grilling Stewart about, you know, some of the most landmark seminal decisions in the Supreme Court's history. Go back to Marbury versus Madison. Sotomayor says, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution specifically, textually, that says that the Supreme Court is the final word on constitutional interpretation and that they get judicial review. But that is what the Supreme Court has interpreted from the structure of the Constitution. Now, Justice Barrett chimes in and she says to, to, to Stewart, you're not suggesting that that a ruling overturning Roe is going to jeopardize Marbury versus Madison, are you? And he says no. And so this was another example of Barrett coming to the rescue of the Missis- of Mississippi's position in the case. So that's why Roe, at the end of this two-hour hearing, seems to be basically on its deathbed. It is on life support, um, and the clinic in Mississippi, I you know, logged on to a press conference earlier this afternoon after the hearing had concluded, and they were very worried about what's going to happen in this case. Yeah, as promised at the beginning of this episode, there has been a lot to unpack here, Jimmy, um, but you've done a fine job of it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I, I think it has to be mentioned, right, that this is not a case that is living in a vacuum. 
there's that Texas case that uh, was taken up on an emergency basis before Dobbs, um, but that we're still waiting to hear uh, about where the court will rule. And, and you know, it's hard to to kind of crystal ball just how these two cases interplay in the justices' minds, you know, with each other. Um, because obviously a, a, a ruling that truly overturns Roe here makes the Texas law unnecessary in, in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what it does is it makes the lawsuit unnecessary because the United States is suing Texas as a violation, uh, Texas is six-week abortion ban because it's a violation of Roe versus Wade. Well, if Roe versus Wade is dead letter, then it really doesn't, it, the, the whole underlying cause of action totally goes away here. So they are related, not entirely intertwined, but yeah, we're still waiting to hear what comes out in that case. It's all very up in the air right now, and we basically have no guidance, and so like the abortion clinic, Jackson Women's Health down in Mississippi, we will be twiddling our thumbs, that's what they said today on today's press conference, until we get some more clarity from the Supreme Court about its abortion jurisprudence. And when we do, we'll be back on the air. Yeah, we should probably just mention that this one, unlike the Texas one, is not expected anytime soon. It is um, likely going to come down in late spring. It could possibly be one of the cases to come down on the last day of the term in late June or possibly even early July. Um, But the justices will have a lot to deliberate over until then. Jimmy, I thought we were not going to crystal ball anymore on when <laughs> justices are going to put down their opinions. It's going right, to come. Right. It's going to come out on my birthday, June thirtieth. That's what oh, no. all the big ones do. <laughs> yeah, I can never take off that day. Uh, anyway. Well, Jimmy, um, important conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Natalie. We'd like to thank our producers Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.